I would ask that you uh, pray with me uh, this, this morning as we pray together in unison in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. John Calvin begins his introductory remarks in his commentary on Genesis by saying, since the infinite wisdom of God is displayed in the admirable structure of heaven and earth, it is absolutely impossible to unfold the history of creation of the world in terms equal to its dignity. Calvin's words are spot on, for we only scratch the surface whenever we try to plumb the depths about the origins of the universe. And that is what Genesis literally means. It means origin. There are many implications to the fact that God originated the universe in the way that he did. Henry Morris states those implications as such. It refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism for God is above that which he created. It refutes polytheism for the one triune God created all things. It refutes materialism for matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism because God and not man is the ultimate reality. It refutes evolutionary theory because God created all things. Here is something that might surprise you. Charles Darwin initially pursued ministerial studies at Cambridge. Regarding that period of his life, he wrote this in his autobiography. I liked the thought of becoming a country clergyman. Accordingly, I read with care Pearson on the Creed and a few other books on divinity. As I then did not doubt the strict and literal truth of every word in the Bible, I soon persuaded myself that our creed must be fully accepted. Darwin there is referring to the Apostles' Creed and a commentary that was written by John Pearson called Exposition of the Creed, which was originally published in 1659. And how does the Apostles' Creed begin? It begins with the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. However, as Darwin's life progressed, he became less and less willing to ascribe the control and the direction of history to God. 
Rather, he came to think of the progress of history as being determined by the impersonal engine of natural selection. Tragically, Darwin did what the Apostle Paul warns us against in Romans 1, verse 25. He chose to exchange the truth of God for a lie. If you remove the creation of this world from the person of God and replace the creation of this world with a materialistic cosmic accident, then man becomes answerable to no one. And well, can't you and I identify with how we like to call our own shots? Only the Bible does not speak in those terms. It never gives us such autonomy. Rather, it tells us that God created all things. And because of that, absolute moral standards do not change. The personal Holy, almighty God alone tells us what is right from wrong. We see that with the giving of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus as God communicated to his people what he expects of and from them. But beyond being morally answerable, to a personal, holy, almighty God, a right view of creation also calls us to live our lives for a much higher purpose than ourselves. I promise that eventually we're going to speed up the process of our exploration of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Perhaps eventually we will go even too fast, but today we add only one more verse to our exploration thus far. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read verse 1 again, and then verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. These verses serve as an explanation of what took place before the order of days that we find to follow. Notice that God creates two things, the heavens and the earth. The heavens refer to a dwelling place for the Almighty and His created angelic host. So God creates an abode for Himself, the heavens. When I was a young boy, one of the reasons I had a hard time with confessing faith and being baptized revolved around a major question that I struggled to move past. My question, where is God? You see, my conscience testified that there was something wrong with me, and I was aware that my problem was sin. I wanted to trust the message of the gospel, and this might seem a bit odd to you, I don't know, but I would sit up at night praying for God to give me enough faith to get past my uncertainty of where he was. Thankfully, 
I yielded my life to Christ without a definitive answer. Thankfully, the Lord sent me down a path that introduced me to much more intelligent men and women than myself. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit has continued to teach and to enlighten me over the years of my Christian life. This morning, I want to share with you the perspective I have since come to embrace in light of my boyhood question, where is God. It is a perspective, mind you, that I would have you consider, albeit not one that you may agree with on every point. God dwells in the heavens in what you can literally call outer space. Because you see, God created the galaxies, which means he is beyond anything we could ever fathom, anything that we could wrap our minds around. His abode is not just above the clouds somewhere. It is in a totally different dimension. And that said, God is not limited to outer space. This other world dimension is merely the created celestial heavens because God existed before anything was ever made. He is, after all, completely self-sufficient. Plus, while God is far above his creation, he also remains near to it. He is transcendent as well as imminent. God can be everywhere at once. He is omnipresent. Oh, we could never begin to plumb the depths or exhaust the being of our God. But heaven, unlike our God, is not eternal. We are told in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Yet in the beginning, when God created his dwelling place, it was not structureless, it was not empty, it did not need forming, it did not need filling, for it was made full and bright. We even learn from the rest of scripture that the angelic host, which were created to worship there, does not multiply. So new angels never appear in the process of time. Biblical scholar James Jordan says humanity was created as a race that matures into a host while the angels were created as a host from the beginning. Some theologians in an effort to explain the fall of Satan and the rebellious angels as well as to explain the presumed age of the earth have come up with what they call a gap theory from verse 2. While I confess that there are parts of the gap theory that appeal to me, it calls for a degree of speculation that I cannot substantiate with the whole counsel of God's word. And as much as possible, and as much as we are able, we must always let Scripture interpret Scripture. A more literal reading of verse 2 does not suggest a primordial war, so to speak, but that earth was simply not yet developed. When verse 2 says that the earth was without form and empty, that does not translate into chaos. It just translates into incompletion. That's 
why we learn of its development occurring on the days to follow. So God creates an abode for humanity, the earth. And the word earth has a particular connotation. It best means that of an orderly sphere or a cultured land. Later in scripture, we, we, when we read about the, the nations and the lands like Israel, like Egypt, we understand them to maintain a certain culture and border. You might say that they are places that possessed an identified purpose. So earth, like heaven, holds a purpose. But in the beginning, the earth is still formless. It's still empty. We have to understand that the earth matures in a way that the heavens do not. God's perfections permeate his dwelling place. It is why we sang, one thing I ask and I would seek to see your beauty, to find you in the place your glory dwells. It is the heavens that serve as a paradigm for the earth. It is why when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he tells them, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. From the beginning, it was always, it was always intended for the earth to grow and be more heaven-like. Peer ahead in the creation account later today, and what you will notice from days one through three is how creation is basically an answer of the earth being formless. There is a dividing, there is an orderly sphere. And then in days four through six, the void is shaped. There is a filling, think cultured land. The parallels, mind you, are not perfect, because there is some filling that takes place on day three and there's some division that takes place on day four, but the general outline proves helpful when we're trying to wrap our minds around the creation of the earth. On day one, the light is separated from the dark forming, while on day four, the luminaries are provided to light the earth and maintain a calendar. On day two, the upper waters are separated from the lower waters, think forming. While on day five, the environment is teeming with creatures of the water as well as birds of the sky, think filling. And then you find on day three, there's a division of the lower waters from the dry land, think forming. While on day six, there is an occupation of the land with beasts and with man, thank filling. In other words, you notice that there are three days of forming, followed by three days of filling. And what God is showing is that he will build a space for humanity. And he will not only build a space for humanity, he will fill that space for humanity. From the very beginning, we are meant to see how God moves from his heaven to make an earth that is set up for his people, for those who are created in his image. And the all-important question is why? 
Why? God creates our hearts to be formed and to be filled with the love of Jesus. At verse 2, the presence of the Holy Spirit hovers over the surface of the waters. And then at verse 3, the Word, who John 1 verse 1 makes clear is Jesus, calls forth light on day 1. That light bearer is also the Holy Spirit being issued forth. This perspective finds support throughout God's Word. It finds support because the sun and the moon and the stars are not made until day four. So there had to be another source alternating between darkness and light. It finds support because the Holy Spirit, who Genesis 1-2 says hovers, is the same Holy Spirit that Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 says hovered over Israel in its wilderness wanderings. And the Hebrew word for hovered is only used in these two texts. It finds support because of how God hovered over Israel in its exodus. A glory cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. It was a prelude to God's heavenly light in the world. It finds support because just like luminaries were not required on day one of the original creation in the new heaven and in the new earth, Revelation 22 and verse 5 tells us that we will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give us light. The sevenfold spirit of Revelation 1 verse 4, symbolic of the perfections of the Holy Spirit, will emanate the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. And this perspective finds support in the role that the Holy Spirit plays, not just in creation, but also in redemption. John 17 verses 1 through 5 make it clear that the Son came to glorify the Father. And John 15, 26, as well as John 16, 14, make it clear that the Holy Spirit came to glorify the Son. Billy Graham says the Holy Spirit illuminates the minds of people, makes us yearn for God, and takes spiritual truth and makes it understandable to us. In other words, as the Holy Spirit sheds light at creation to emanate the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son, so too the Holy Spirit sheds light at redemption to emanate the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son in our hearts. So if you and I have the light of God in our hearts, what are we supposed to do? Answer. We are to form and to fill this earth by promoting the good. In the creation account, we find a repetition of the words, and God saw it was good. It was good because the Lord was patterning the earth after his heavens. 
Once again, we must hear the words of Jesus teaching us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe, just maybe, God was forming and filling the earth in such a way to serve as a garden and as a home in which a bride for his son would be reared. How else should we understand the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, for he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. How else should we understand the Apostle John's words in Revelation chapter 21 at verse 2? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, all of this is resulting from the love of God, a love expressed in eternity past and emanating from the Father, from the Son, from the Holy Spirit, in the different functions that each perform first at creation and then for our redemption. For all the fine examination biblical scholarship can make about the opening verses of the Bible and for all of the attempts that I can suggest or make to answer my boyhood question. When God wrote the words in the beginning, he knew where the story was going. He knew that it would be precisely that, just a beginning, and what a glorious beginning it is. Because eventually, the earth will actually be as it is in heaven. Have you yet been prepared as a bride for Jesus Christ? Has the light of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God yet shined in your heart? If the answer is no, won't you let him turn your grave back into a garden? Oh, but if the answer is yes, it is thus intended for us to live for a purpose greater than ourselves. It is thus intended for us to form and to fill this earth in such a way as to make it more heaven-like. It is thus intended for us to promote the good of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. It is the good of bringing the light of the gospel to bear in this world. It is the good of cultivating an environment free of pollution and waste. It is the good of working for the benefit and the well-being of others. It is the good of serving the needs of the orphan and the widow. It is the good of visiting the sick, the marginalized, and the imprisoned. It is the good of forgiving others as we have been forgiven. It is the good, is it not, of seeing God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Are we about the good? He said, and it was good. 
just be about making it good again until he comes. And whether or not you connect with, whether or not you agree with parts of what I have shared in today's message, I pray that you can at least agree and connect with me in these last words that I share. The ultimate paradigm of creation is for our hearts to be formed and to be filled by the love of Jesus Christ. Let your heart be filled and formed by the love of our Savior. Pray with me. Lord, Lord our God, you are so far above anything that we could ever wrap our minds around, and yet you wrap yourselves around us. You come to us in the person of your Son, and you declare us a bride adorned for heaven. Oh, Spirit of God, hover. Hover over your people today, I pray. Bless them, enlighten them, equip them to be about the good. I pray this, Jesus, in your name, believing. Amen.